give a, a word of caution to uh, those of you that have been coming here for quite some time. Uh, we see new faces come along, and uh, the church seems to be growing numerically. And uh, for those of you that have been, been here for a while, I, I guess I just want to give you a word of caution uh, that we don't look upon such things as a measure of success. I want us to look at a measure of success as hearts turning towards God, people repenting, confessing, and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So although we are glad you're here, and it does create a little bit of anxiety on my part and the, uh, the elders and leaders here, uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, but as uh, a shepherd, I just want to warn you and caution those of you that uh, look at such things, don't. Uh, we want to see our hearts turning towards God. So I want to invite you all to uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to the New Testament book of Luke. Uh, we're beginning a new chapter this week and uh, continuing in the study of this rich gospel. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And as I was telling my wife what text I was uh, going to be on, she says, I'm leaving. And so the, uh, the ushers, if you would, block her. Do not let her escape. <laughs> but uh, anyway, there's no real greater time that we can spend together than in God's word together here. It's how God has revealed himself to man. It's how we come to know the nature and the character of God. And it's how we come to learn the truth. We don't learn by osmosis or simple, quiet contemplation, as many have tried to advocate. And we need to be aware of those who try to deny the sufficiency of Scripture. But if we want to know who God is, we want to know his plan of redemption, the cross, the resurrection, how we ought to live, how we ought to think, and how we ought to respond to God, we do that through God's word. It's how we learn such things. And now, as we've seen over the course of studying chapter 4, the absolute supreme sovereignty and authority of Jesus Christ has been on display for us. We began with the temptation of Satan in the wilderness to which Jesus depended upon God's word and the indwelling Holy Spirit. We've seen his mastery of scripture from repelling Satan uh, with it to his teaching of it uh, to the people as one who did so with authority. And we've seen how he was able to miraculously slipped through this violent crowd in his own hometown of Nazareth who drove him to a cliff to throw him over it. We've seen how he was able to cast demons uh, out in the synagogue and then turn around and heal Peter's mother-in-law who was ill. Uh, we've seen how he would go on to heal many people who were sick and had varying diseases. Uh, and then also we would see how he demonstrated his authority by being able to even silence the many demons who were coming out of those that he healed. And not only can he tell a demon where to go, but he's going to tell them how they're going to go about doing it. In the case of verse 41, he tells them to go in silence. Absolute authority, divine dominance, supreme sovereignty. Jesus continually and will continue to display that for us again and again. But this week, we're going to um, be covering, I think, one of the most powerful and amazing statements to Jesus, certainly, if not in chapter 5, and if not in the entire book of Luke, from Simon Peter this week. So let's look at our text in chapter 5 here together, starting in verse 1. And if you are able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. 
God's word says this. Now it happened while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all of his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency in instructing us, Lord. So this morning we pray that our minds would be sharp and that we would not be distracted about the cares of the world or the things going on in our homes, Lord. That we would be solely focused on you, learning who you are and what you've accomplished for us. Father, we thank you for this time together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If there is anyone in the, the Gospels who has left an indelible mark besides Jesus Christ, it has to be Simon Peter. His name is first of all the New Testament list of the apostles. His name comes up in the four Gospels, only second to that of Jesus Christ. No disciple speaks as much as Peter does, and Jesus speaks more frequently to Peter than any other disciple. Sometimes he speaks quickly, rashly, and wrongly. For example, in John 13, 8 and 9, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And occasionally, Peter speaks so rashly to the extent that he receives one of the harshest rebukes from the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 16, and 23, he said, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter is also inquisitive. For example, in Matthew 18, 21, he asks, Lord, how many times or how, sh- how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? In Matthew 19, 27, he asks, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? 
In Acts 10.47, he asks, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? In other times, Peter speaks no greater truths, and he speaks so boldly and so courageously. In Matthew 16, 16, Jesus asks him, says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John 6, 68 and 69, he declares, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Sometimes speaking hastily, rashly, unadvisedly, running headlong into deep waters. Yet at the same time, he was certainly transparent. He was ready to repent and return to his master again and again. He sounds a lot like us, doesn't he? Do we not come to church a lot of times and giving our hearty amens to what's sung and said, but yet we walk away from here and through the week our hearts and our minds are far from the Holy One of God? Are we not the same in our hearts wanting to step off the boat and and walk towards Jesus Christ who bids us to come, yet we start to turn our eyes and our thoughts to the winds of affliction and adversity and we begin to sink ourselves? Truth be told, we have fickle, temperamental hearts. We don't rightly esteem the glory of God. We don't properly seek the wisdom of God. We don't revere the holiness of God as we ought to. We look to our temporal, earthly comforts rather than looking to our eternal, heavenly destiny. And though we should obey the Lord's command to watch and pray so that we will not enter into into temptation, just like Peter, we're all weak. We're weak in the flesh, and we are sometimes found by him to be asleep. So let's look into our text a little bit more and begin to look at this powerful statement by the Apostle Peter. But first, we've got to set the stage, if you will. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now we need to understand just a few things here. First of all, is the fact that these crowds are now starting to come to Jesus. In the first century, there was no real media or advertising. There was no uh, Facebook or Internet or anything like that. Jesus couldn't hire a a PR firm firm to generate Twitter followers. And uh, those of you who do Twitter, uh, these people that have millions of followers, they actually hire a company to come up with fake names, fake profiles, like who they are, so that they can have a million-plus people digging what they got, right? It's fake. It's all a farce. But Jesus didn't hire an agency to buy copies of his latest book to generate it and to drive it up into the New York Times bestseller list. And sadly, there was a pastor who recently did that. These people that are coming are coming to him solely based on word of mouth. These people are undoubtedly hearing about the miracles by this point as he's about a year and a half into his ministry. They're hearing his eloquence of the scriptures, and most assuredly, they're hearing about the confidence in the way that he's speaking. He's not speaking to them as the scribes and the Pharisees are, but he's doing that with authority. We're talking not only about the form 
but also the content, right? Most people today in America, they're not attracted by the content. They're attracted by the form, right? We like the light shows, the skits, the PowerPoints. We like to have our senses and our eyes stimulated, right? I remember seeing a pastor in India, and I know he posted a photo on the Internet one time with about 15 pastors sitting in this room, and they're all sitting on this dirt floor. And he's got this little caption on this photo, And uh, they're sitting there at this pastoral training school with their Bibles on their laps in a dirt floor room. And the caption on the photo says, pray for chairs. That's all they want. Give us some chairs to get us off these cold floors. Can you imagine what the church would look like today if we stripped away all those chrome towers and those light shows and all those, get rid of the coffee bars? How many people would stay? How many people would remain? I bet you 75% or better, and I'm being generous probably, but I bet you 75% of the people would probably walk out because that's what American Christians are attracted to. They're attracted to the form, the su- not the substance. But Jesus isn't bedazzling people here with a sermon series on how they can have a more vibrant marriage. He isn't telling them how they can achieve their, uh, their personal success through getting their finances in order. But the people are pressing in all around him because they are listening to him. And verse 1 tells us that they are listening to the word of God. Now, in this context, we're not talking about the biblical canon of Scripture or the Bible per se because it wasn't totally formulated that yet. But what this means is that when they are hearing Jesus Christ speak, they're hearing God speak. God's words were Jesus' words. John 12, 49 and 50 says, For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who has sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life, and therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. And so as they did, as they are pressing in, On Jesus. He's getting backed up to the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret here is just simply the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. In the Old Testament, it's called the Sea of Chinnereth. So we got four names to remember, right? It's all the same body of water. When the Jews returned from exile in Babylon in about the 6th century BC, they started to call it the lake of Gennesaret. So when you're reading scripture, it's good to bear in mind that it could be called any one of these four bodies of water. It's the same body, but it's 14 square miles. It's not a little lake. It's about 12 miles long, north to south, and anywhere from four to seven miles wide, east to west, and it's about 157 feet deep. So it's a pretty impressive body of water. Now, if you remember from last week, the temple in Capernaum is just a stone's throw distance from Peter's house. Remember last week we talked about this church and that school over there. That's about the distance from the synagogue to Peter's house. And then from there on, it's about a stone's throw to the Sea of Galilee. Peter was a fisherman. This was his trade. He had to get there, right? And so as they're on the shore... This massive crowd is getting closer and closer, and they're pushing forward in order to hear Jesus, and it's driving him into the water. It'd be uh, similar to us if you've ever really been at a really popular packed auction, and you're trying to see what they're selling, and you're hearing, trying to hear and see what they're bidding on and all those types of things, and you keep kind of shuffling around and moving around to hear and see, and, and people are packing in there. This is a similar type of instance. And so as they are doing this, 
Jesus finds his way out. Verse 2 and 3 tells us that. It says in verse 2, he says, He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked to be put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and he began teaching the people from the boat. So in order to escape from those crowds that keep pushing in on them, Jesus decides to take refuge in a fishing boat. Now, these weren't small little boats. They were fishing boats, and they were of the size that they could handle the 12 disciples. And so as they anchored up to the shore, Jesus wades out into the water, and he jumps into Simon Peter's. And by way of natural acoustics and by allowing to see the people to be able to see him better, Jesus got into the boat to teach the people. And then it also mentions that he sat down to teach. Now, in the synagogues, a rabbi typically, as they would read the scroll, we looked at this from a couple weeks ago, he would read and then he would sit down to teach, right? We saw that in chapter 4, verse 20, as Jesus read from the book of Isaiah. But it also tells us that the fisherman, Peter being one of them, was already out washing his nets. And he calls Peter back into his boat so that he could get away from the shore a bit, to be able to teach the people. Now, a typical first century fisherman, they would have fished all night, and then they would have repaired and cleaned their nets by day, as we're going to see in verse 5 in a moment. But there were a couple of different ways that people could fish in the first century with nets, and it doesn't really tell us which way they were doing it. But one of the first ways they do it is by casting a net, right? And this is simply a 15-foot round net with weights on it. It looks like a spider web. They take it, they throw it, it's got a rope on the end, it sinks down and grabs whatever lands on top of, and then they pull the rope and pull the fish in. The other method is called seine net fishing. That's S-E-I-N-E. Now this actually involves a couple of boats, which I think is probably more likely based on our text here, as it mentions that there was two boats in verse 2. But essentially, this was a larger net. It was a net that had cork floats that kept the top half afloat, lead on the bottom to make a wall, and this thing was sometimes a quarter of a mile to a half mile in length. And so once they got, the boats would go out, they would make a loop in the water with this net, and then bring everything into the boats. But that's what Peter and the others are doing. They're on the, on the shore. They're getting rid of all the junk. Sometimes they got junk. They're on the shore getting all that junk out. And so Peter jumps back into the boat. He pushes off a bit, and, keeps, and Jesus keeps on teaching and preaching because that is what he was sent to do. We saw that back in verse 43 of chapter 4. So neither crowd nor water, nor any earthly thing is going to stop him from proclaiming the good news. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life, John 5 tells us. This was his message. It wasn't a call for social transformation. It wasn't a call for political activism. It wasn't a call for you to find your greatest joy in your possessions and to be uplifted in your self-esteem to be a better you. It was a call to repent. It was a call for you to take up your cross and follow him. It was a call for you to take and turn from your wicked ways, turn to him in faith, so that the life that you now live, you live for Christ. It was a call that you would turn from the satisfaction in yourself to finding your satisfaction in God. So as he's preaching the gospel to him, we see him finish up with the crowd, 
And then he sets his sights on his first disciples. Looking at verses 4 through 7, it reads, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish that their nets and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. So Jesus gets done speaking. He looks to Peter. He tells him to put out the nets into the water once again into the deeper water. So here is the son of a carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish. And to Peter, this request didn't make sense. Peter was a fisherman by trade, and this was his job. And if there was anyone who knew the seas and knew how to catch a fish, it would have been Peter. But there were others on the boat with Peter, as the plural form of let down is used here. And so Andrew most certainly was with him, but there could have possibly been James and John right there or nearby. But Peter's response is really kind of one of respectful agitation. Thank you. He most certainly calls Jesus master, but he laments to him that they have worked hard all night. It was back-breaking, tiring work to put out a large, long fishing net and then sail and circle around and bring it back up again. It wasn't an easy task that Jesus Christ is asking them to do. And besides that, it was already morning time, and they no doubt were frustrated from a lack of success the night before. Maybe some of you have probably experienced that in your business ventures or you seem like you're just spinning your wheels and you don't really get anything done all day long. You're putting out other people's fires or or running around with a lot of busy work and you don't feel like you've done anything productive. Maybe you're a mom and Mount St. Laundry doesn't seem to ever have an end. It's aggravating. And the third strike against Jesus is the fact that he's asking them to do it during the day. The sun would have been out and would have made a hot job even hotter. But Peter, although he's tired, although he's weary, and although he may have been frustrated by the previous night's success or the lack thereof, he reluctantly does as Jesus asks. You can almost hear him talking in this Eeyore voice, which I do very well, but I won't do it totally for you. But he says, I will do as you say. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, come on, Lord. There, have been, there may have been this glimmer of hope in the back of Peter's mind, though. Since the Lord had miraculously healed his mother-in-law back in the house and cast out a demon in the synagogue, among all the other things that Peter has seen, there may have been this sense of just maybe we'll catch a fish. And so as he does, as he does his request in verse 6, the most astonishing thing happens. It says, when they had done this, They had enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Fish on, right? Peter probably ripped out his GPS system and his Lawrence uh, uh, navigation's fish finder, and he threw it right in the water, right? So when they start to circle around, and they come from boat to boat, and they, they pull on this net. They give it a little tug. They know there is an enormous bounty of fish in that net. 
<clears throat> excuse me, you can imagine Peter's pulse just starting to race and his, his eyes getting bigger and his breathing getting a little faster and he's pulling on this net and it's getting so heavy that he can't pull it himself. It's sort of like the, a big game fisherman when they hook on to one of those marlins or whatever, you know. And they're like, oh boy, you know, and they're sitting them in the chair. Guys are pulling them back. They're putting seat belts on them, you know, the five point. And he's sitting back in the boat, right? Peter is tugging on this net and he knows that he is not going to be able to do this on his own. And so he calls for the other boat to come and help them as they're doing this. The nets are breaking. There's so many fish. There's such a huge bounty that they are unable to even pull them in because this net is busting loose. So what's the point of all this? The point isn't that Peter needs to get a bigger boat. The point isn't that he needs better nets or even that he needs to start fishing during the day or that he needs to expand his fishing fleet. And I would imagine that there's some health and wealth preachers out there that would take a text like this and show how you can grow your business God's way by just having faith in Jesus. That is not what this text is about. The point is about Jesus. The point is that Jesus is the master of the sea. He is as much God of the deep waters as he is God of the highest heavens. He knows where the fish are because he causes their habitation. He is the one who can draw out the Leviathan with a hook, Job 41 tells us. He was there when the mouths of lions were shut in Daniel 6. And you can be sure that when the horses of judgment are running about in this world, executing their justice from Revelation chapter 6, they are but instruments of God, and the reins of those horses are in the hand of God. Can a sparrow fall without the notice of the Lord, he asked in Matthew chapter 10? It's a rhetorical question. Then neither can a fish swim without his divine appointment. And so all these fish running into the net is not only a display of his omnipotence, but it's an also it's a display of the omniscience of Jesus. When Jesus encountered Nathanael for the first time in John chapter 1, he told Nathanael, when he saw him, he said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And what did Nathanael tell him? He said, How do you know me? Right? He said, Jesus Andrews said, before Philip called you, you were under a fig tree and I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And when Jesus was in need of a place to eat at the Passover meal in Mark chapter 14, he told his disciples, go into the city and find a man carrying a pitcher. And follow that man wherever he goes. And when he goes into the house, I want you to ask him, where is the room that the teacher can eat the Passover meal with all of his disciples? And he's going to show you a large upper room that is fully furnished and it's ready to go. And so Mark 14, 16 tells us that as they found him, they found this man, it was just as Jesus had told them. He hadn't been there. He knows that there's going to be a guy carrying a pitcher of water. He knows there's going to be a room. And not only that, but it's going to be on the second floor. And it's going to be fully furnished so that they can all eat the Passover meal. Displaying his supernatural knowledge. Now there are times when he's restricted that knowledge. And if you remember our Lamborghini illustration from, uh, that was caked in mud from several weeks ago. 
Essentially, he doesn't always use that 600 horsepower that's available to him. But he is demonstrating to Peter here and his companions that he has supernatural knowledge. Jesus will demonstrate it again and again to Peter when he tells him to throw his hook into the water in Matthew 17, and you'll find a shekel to pay the two drachma tax. And when Peter tries to catch fish again, he's going to tell him to throw his net on the right side of the boat to catch fish, as John chapter 21 does. So not only does he know where the fish are, but he commanded these fish to enter the net so much that the boats are sinking under the weight of this enormous catch. So what's Peter's response to this great catch of fish? Verse 8 tells us, But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all of his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Peter had seen enough. Whatever thoughts that he had about Jesus before this just exploded inside of his mind. Whatever conclusions he had drawn from the synagogue service to the casting in of demons to the healing of his mother-in-law, they had all just been obliterated. The empirical evidence was now so overwhelming that Peter realized he is standing in front of the Holy One. And his response is most appropriate, isn't it? He falls down to his knees. Peter is confronted face to face with the holy, omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe. And he falls prostrate before him, knowing that his heart is desperately wicked. This is the same response that Isaiah had in in Isaiah 6 when he saw the vision of the Lord. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because of my unclean lips. This is the same response that Saul will have on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And when he sees the glory of Christ, he will fall to his knees. And this is the same response John's going to have in Revelation 1. When he sees the Son of Man, he says, I saw one like a Son of Man, clothed in robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, and when it had been made to glow like a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And so when Peter realizes just exactly who he is standing in front of, He realizes his unworthiness to stand before him, and he does what is only appropriate. He falls prostrate before the feet of Jesus. He doesn't care about his sinking ship. He doesn't care about the money he can make from this huge catch. But Peter is bowing down, not because he feels like he deserves a gift, but he bows down because he knows he needs God's grace. There's a certain trauma when we are confronted with the holiness of God. Peter Peter here realizes that he is poor. He realizes that he is blind and he is oppressed and he bows down to Jesus in humble submission. But this is exactly where Jesus wants him. This is the penitent heart that Jesus is seeking. Let me ask you something this morning. Have you ever grieved over your own personal sinfulness? Can you cry out like Paul and say, wretched man that I am? 
A.W. Pink said, It's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. I was listening to Todd Friel from Wretched Radio a couple weeks ago. He's the host of that show, and he says, starts out the show, Hi, I'm Todd. You know the wretch that the song talks about? Or do you feel like you've got it all together? I'm basically a good person. I don't hurt anybody. I don't lie. I don't steal. I try not to say bad words. So if you're able to do all those things and you're able to do them perfectly, then for what purpose did Jesus Christ die? You see, the problem originates in the heart of man. John Flavel, in his book, Keeping the Heart, writes this. He said, heart evils are very provoking evils to the Lord. The schools rightly observe that outward sins are are sins of great infamy, but the heart sins are sins of deeper guilt. How severely has the great God declared wrath from heaven against heart wickedness? The crime from which the old world stands indicted is heart wickedness. God saw every imagination of their hearts was only on evil, and that continually. For which he sent the most dreadful judgments that were ever afflicted or inflicted since time began. This is exactly what Peter now understands, and this is exactly where Jesus wants him. Humbled, broken, guilty, shamed, condemned. But Jesus isn't going to leave him there. Verse 9 tells us, For amazement had seized him and all of his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Aware of who they were dealing with, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, They are first comforted by the words, do not fear, right? It's literally here in the Greek, stop being terrified. We've covered this in the past in Luke. When you are confronted with an angel of the Lord or Jesus Christ, God incarnate, it could go one of two ways, either really good or really bad. But here Jesus brings them, first of all, words of comfort. He's not only the omnipotent, omniscient, holy, powerful God of the universe, but now he's demonstrating that he is merciful. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. But even though Peter wanted to send Jesus away because of reverential fear, Jesus wanted to demonstrate to Peter his mercy and draw him in. And even though Peter is a sinner and he recognized himself as such, Jesus is going to use Peter to such an extent that Peter will deliver one of the greatest sermons ever recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. He will use him to build his church, and he will use him to proclaim his gospel, of which we are all here today enjoying the fruits of. And so as fishermen, and as one who navigated the seas by sailing, Peter's penitence here marked him out as the captain of this small fleet. But Peter is going to raise a different flag. He's going to start to become a fisher of men, one who would seek to catch men's souls for the sake of Christ, for the power, through the power of the gospel. 
And so from this point on, Peter's going to raise a different flag. He is going to sail under the flag of the cross of Christ with an ultimate obedience that would eventually lead him home to the safe harbors of heaven. So whose flag are you sailing under this morning? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus with a broken spirit and a contrite heart? Have you come to a point where you recognize your own sinfulness? Because Jesus bids you to come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if you have come to a place of brokenness, are you trusting solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Are you living a life that seeks to please him? Our God delights in looking for imperfect people with limited resources so that he can take them, the foolish things of the world, and confound the wise and do it all for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercies, Lord, every single day, moment by moment. We thank you that you're a God that we can run to, that you are our strong tower. You're our fortress. And Father, we just want to walk from here, honoring you and glorifying you, living our lives in such a way that is pleasing to you. And Father, as we go forth this week, through this week, with Christmas right around the corner, let us not lose sight of the fact that you have accomplished redemption for us through the birth of your Son. We thank you for that, God. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you'll join us for our closing songs, we're going to sing them a cappella this morning, so if you'll just stand with us, we've got Joy to the World and the First Noel. So if you get your papers out and stand with us, we'll... Joy to the world, the Lord.